I could just take time off. And that's like another form of, you know, presenting to the world, like, look at me, I got all this, you know, I have yeah. a lot of free time and a lot of money and I could use it for leisure. And Hey everyone, my name is Al Gugliotta and I want to welcome you to the Unlearning Project. I got Tim Marino with me. Hey, Al. Hey, Tim. So we've been talking off air here. We like getting together and just rapping about a lot of different things. But one of the main things is going to be conspicuous consumption. And that definition of that is purchase of goods and services to display one's wealth. And, you know, that's kind of like the life we, uh, that's the world we live in at this point. And Tim's a longtime friend. So I want to have him on the podcast because we spent a lot of time just kind of bullshitting about philosophy and life. So uh, we're going to dive into this subject today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Al. Yeah, Tim. Let's get into it. We're both from Long Island, New York. So we're very familiar with conspicuous consumption. Yeah. <laughs> South Shore, North Shore. <laughs> yeah, you get all these people that are, you know, driving fancy cars and multi-million dollar houses. Yeah. You know, wearing whatever, bling, jewelry. Like, we kind of grew up around that. At least I did. I mean... I was in Dix Hills. I was a little different than Mineola in Long Island. Yeah. But I grew up around a lot of rich kids, you know, a lot of kids that like 16 years old, they got like a brand new car as their first car Mm -hmm. where I had like some piece of crap, you know, that I got for like 1500 bucks that broke down every few days. Yeah. It could be like a, I don't want to say like humbling, but it kind of gives you a sense of where people are at in socioeconomic kind of situations, lifestyles, whatever you want to call it. So yeah, I could relate to that. Yeah. I didn't know how to make sense of it back then. I just realized that, all right, these people have a lot more money than my parents have. And I used to ask my parents, I'm like, mom, like, are we poor? And she'd be like, we're not poor, but we're not rich. That was always her canned answer. You know, we're not poor, but we're not rich. Right. So, and I kind of knew, like they always had different clothes, they had better cars. You'd go to like some of their birthday parties and you'd be like, what the hell? We're like, it's a freaking mansion. And that's just the way they lived. Yeah. I don't remember thinking like I didn't have enough though back then. I just remember knowing there was like a big disparity between what I had and what they had. Yeah. I was in the same idea. Same kind of deal with you. Yeah. Yeah. Living way above and beyond like the needs, anybody's needs. That's kind of like what conspicuous consumption is. Like obviously you don't need you know, brand new freaking sports car. Obviously, you don't need a multi-million dollar, 10,000 square foot mansion. Right. You need a bathroom. You need a bed to sleep in. You need food to eat. Show like the basics of life. Yeah, it's like bare necessities. We all have that common need. And yeah, everything else is, yeah, not necessary. But there, some things are nice and to have, share with others. I think that's a big part of this is I think that's what's maybe is neglected from or what a lot of people neglect is sharing with others, not even goods and material items, but things like charity. Yeah. And time, just your time, time, conversation, like the little things, you know, kind of go a long way for people. You know, I'm in the medical field, so I see a lot of that where, you know, people want to share things with you and why they're having an MRI, why they're in the hospital and stuff like that. And then, you know, you kind of give them some of your time and it goes a long way. You can see it. A human connection, like you need rights. I mean, giving somebody a present or money or 
Yeah, I think that people crave a human connection, like above and beyond material stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's how like we connected too, like in a lot of ways. The fun, <laughs> the one story I was thinking about, I mean, this is kind of reverting back to like the material stuff, but like, the first time I met you, I went to a Super Bowl party at your house. Yeah. This is, I don't even know how long ago this was. It's got to be 12 years ago, maybe yes. more. I don't know. A long time ago. Yeah. And you had one of those TVs that back in Long Island, I remember these TVs. And it's literally like, it was like the size of my first car. It was like, <laughs> it was the biggest TV you'd ever seen. And maybe people in the audience like remember this, but I don't know if it was the 90s or like early 2000s. It was actually on wheels. It was on wheels. On wheels. Like the heaviest, like you needed three like strong men to pick it up and move it. <laughs> and it was like a giant piece of furniture. Like it was a literally like a piece of furniture unto itself. <laughs> but it was a giant screen. And I remember when those first ones came out, again, it was a piece of furniture. It wasn't like the flat screens we have now. You just put it up on a wall. <laughs> but you had it like 12 years after like that ship had sailed. <laughs> I was like, oh, I haven't seen one of those in like 12 years. <laughs> and like the screen was like, you know, the picture wasn't that great, but like it was still working. It was still functional. Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, I was really intrigued by it because like most of my other friends, you know, oh, I'm going to get like the perfect plasma flat screen. This and, that. and I go to your house and you got like this, you know, old kind of old school TV that you're like, hey, this shit still works. Yeah. I'm going to use it until it freaking. And I was like really intrigued by that. I really was. I was like, wow, he's like a frugal guy. You know, I'm sure he could afford a regular flat screen, but he he kept this one for 15 years or whatever it was. Yeah, it's I'm kind of the same way with cars. It's like I go for a high score with the mileage. I'll, I'll like invest in it versus a car payment. I'd rather, you know, put what engine work or whatever it would need, you know, to mm -hmm. make the long-term investment versus something like brand new or just, you know, get Long-term investment, I guess, is the common theme. You know, I bought that TV in New York. I had it in a basement apartment. Mm -hmm. I moved it here. And when we moved out of that house, I put it on Craigslist or something. And someone came with a trailer. <laughs> and they took it away. I was like, I can't believe I actually, I gave it away. Yeah. I mean, yeah. At that point, it was like, like you said, plasma on the wall and all that stuff. <laughs> right. It probably would have cost more to like move it somewhere else. Right. Someone came with a big smile and a trailer. It was like, thank you for this. And I was like, oh, great. You know, I'm <laughs> going somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that, that was like, I mean, you could easily afford something else. You stayed with that. I don't know. Those things always like intrigue me. Like when people like do stuff like that, because I was like, oh, he doesn't give a shit. You know, he's having a big Super Bowl party. It's a funny looking TV. Yeah. It's huge. It's, I wish I had a picture of it. I wish I could like put it in the show notes. People probably know what I'm talking about. It's hilarious. Yeah. Like every time I see the TVs, it makes me laugh. I bought it in like the early 2000s when the HD TVs first came out and all that. So it was actually HD, which is surprising, but it was like one of the first ones. One of the first ones. Yeah. And it wasn't, they never had the flat screens at that point. They were like the big, it was a tube. Right? Uh, no, it was called projection. It had the tube inside of it. Okay. And then it like somehow projected onto the screen. That's how I, now it's coming back to me from like the sales. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <at> PC Richards. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. I think of that when I think of you a lot, when I think about especially a conspicuous consumption or, you know, now like you bought a Jeep and you bought an older Jeep and like, you know, it's just like, that's your way. Me too. I'm kind of feel like somewhat the same way. Yeah. But I do feel the tendencies of, buying nice things and going on nice vacations. And yeah. there was another part of the consumption paradigm that like, I didn't really think about. And it's something called conspicuous leisure. So conspicuous leisure is like, you know, showing people 
not showing them your material stuff, but showing them how much free time you have and showing them like, look, I could go on vacations whenever I want. And I'm not bothered by the need to make money. I could just take time off. And that's like another form of you know, presenting to the world, like, look at me, I got all this, you know, I have yeah. a lot of free time and a lot of money and I could use it for leisure. And I thought that was interesting too, because I know what your schedule is like. <laughs> you got like a week off every other week. Yeah. Right. Like exhibiting your lifestyle to people through just verbally, I guess, like you're saying. Yeah. yeah or social media posting, like every time you're on vacation. And it's funny, I'm real conscious of this stuff because I feel like I definitely vacation more than most. But like, I try to keep it to myself or like, you know, I'll mention it to you guys, but it goes with all consumption. I don't want to make anybody feel bad. And I feel like a lot of what social media does, it makes people feel bad about their lives. Like, I don't want to like brag about my life. Look how great my life is. Your life freaking blows. Right, right. So I'm like very conscious of, I don't want to like present that to the public. And a lot of times I don't even want to buy the things, even though I think I'd enjoy them. Right. Just because I don't want to like project that, you know? Yeah. And people really tap into that where like I put, it was a picture that's probably four or five years old now of my daughter at the beach in New York where we went on a trip a few years ago, like I said. And I was like, oh, that's kind of a cool picture because I'm not a social media guy, but I just have like one or two pictures of us and that's it. Yeah. And someone, I guess, messaged me and the thing I was like, oh, where are you guys? And I was like, oh, that's like an old picture. <laughs> they thought we were like right there that day or whatever. I was like, no, it's like, it's like five years ago. Yeah, it was just like a cool picture I thought was, you know, kind of generic and fun, you know? Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think it's okay to share. Of course, it's okay to share stuff. I think I'm more sensitive to that because I felt like in the past, before I had any kind of means to do anything, I kind of felt that a little twinge of that. Friends of mine were doing like a lot of vacation kind of things. And I'm like, ah, shit, I can't really do that. I'm kind of in the grind of work and feeling bad about my own life, like that kind of thing. So I'm like very conscious of, not projecting that, you know? Right, right. But it's weird. It kind of goes down this rabbit hole, like where all this stuff kind of stemmed from. And I was thinking about like Italians and like the Spanish, they have siestas, right? Right. And so speaking of conspicuous leisure, it's like three to four hours every freaking day. They go home, like their business shuts down. <laughs> they go home, they have a meal, they take a nap open. Like that's the whole society does that. Yeah. Like it literally just shuts down. Even tea in England, right? Right. Or like, uh, I think in France, they have like 30 hour work weeks. Wow. I know all the, I mean, Europeans vacation. Anytime we go on vacation and we meet anybody from Europe, they're going for minimum three weeks. Wow. And we've seen people traveling upwards of five or six weeks and they see us and we're like, sometimes we're going for like a four day vacation. They're like four days. <laughs> like, why would you even bother? Like you <laughs> you jump on a plane to go for four days. Like they can't even yeah. Imagine doing that. It's like as a comedian and he meets like one of the, like the European people. I was like, where do you vacation? And then he's like, you know, we have the backyard with the grill and the deck. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> like the man cave. He's like, my dad, my dad, man cave. He's like, my man cave's the house. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Right. But dude, I mean, it's so funny. And then you think about like, A conspicuous consumption also, which is kind of like a weird way of looking at it, but it's like, when you think of like obesity, conspicuous consumption is like eating. Like we have an epidemic of like obesity. And so it's a weird thing, but like, I think we've become such, not a rich society, but like a well-to-do society where we don't really have, I mean, our poor people are the richest poor people in the world, right? 
Right. I mean, our poor people like usually have like cell phones and like, they had like, there's different levels of poor. Sure. There's poor where you really can't eat. And there's poor where you just, your social status is lower than everybody else's. Pretty big spectrum. Yeah. But the eating thing is like people have the means to eat and eat to the point where like, you know, they're obese. So it's just another weird kind of, you know, conspicuous consumption thing. Like you're showing that you can basically eat all you want, you know? Yeah. Maybe it's like almost related in a way to how people like photo their food and put it on social media. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Look how fancy my meal is. Right. Right. It's like a little piece of arugula. Like nobody gives a shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We do take pictures of food. That's kind of embarrassing. Yeah. (laughs) That's cool. You were mentioning like when we first started talking about, the advertising, like, you know, the retirement advertising. And like, we talk about investments a little bit here and there. Yeah, I think with advertising, I like, you know, investment publication, you know, Kiplinger's, those kind of magazines and stuff. And I guess it's hard to avoid the advertising page by page and everything. And yeah, it's, I don't know, good photography or, you know, good looking older man, woman, couple, and they're hiking and they're canoeing on as the sun's rising. And it's like, wow, you know, I could... (laughs) Maybe I should use their broker or you know. if you invest your money with us, you're going to be them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. It's clever. I mean, but it's like, I'm also kind of giving or thinking of like the madmen kind of advertising, you know, who's behind it and what they're trying to sell and, you know, that everyone makes commission and stuff like that. So, yeah. And you don't know the quality of the investments or anything. All you're looking at is the picture. They're selling the dream, right? Yeah. The association of what you can get with you. You know, maybe you invest with us. Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. <laughs> what was it? The EF Hutton? What's that? <laughs> the EF, EF <laughs> Hutton. When, when EF Hutton talks, people listen. <laughs> Wasn't that like that slogan or something? Yeah. I'm like, it's like the secret society. Yeah. Shh. <laughs> right, only we know we're on Wall Street. We like have this inside scoop that you don't know at in the general public. Yeah. And it's almost like an anti advertising where Wall Street has their secrets and their terms and the Fed is, it's like a very hush-hush, even though they tell you the Fed or whoever is meeting today, and then we're going to all, you know, yeah. it's like a Wizard of Oz thing. It's like they're behind the curtain and then they come out and tell you, you know. Yeah, they're doing their secret shit. They're like secret handshake. They're in a secret club that nobody else is privy to. Right. And then they tell you it's going to dictate this and that. But I mean, really, it's we're all along for a ride in a sense investment wise, you know, right. I mean, oh man, that's a whole another rabbit hole and <laughs> going down. Yeah. Like the fed and what they do. And yeah. And had, this has been big conspiracy now with like politicians that are being able to invest on the open market. And, you know, meanwhile, they're like making legislative decisions yeah. on corporations that they're investing in. You know, it's like, it's like inside info. It's a, yeah, it's totally inside info. Yeah. yeah. It's like, they're, they're privy to like information that, they shouldn't, well, they can be privy to it, but then they can't invest in those companies. Right. Well, they shouldn't be able to, but they can. Yeah. And they're fighting over this now. Like basically the politicians, I think like Pelosi made a statement. She's like, I think, you know, people in my job should be able to invest in the open markets. Right. And you're like, how is that? But wait, you can't invest in the open markets when you have direct influence on the companies that you're investing in. Yeah. Because then you know where it's going and the general public doesn't. What gives you the right to have this, you know? So it's like, yeah, that secret society, secret handshake stuff. Yeah, it's definitely frustrating as, you know, we're not politicians, we're on the outside and just 
Joe Smith investors. So. Right. Yeah. I was talking about this with Messina on the last episode, but we're the ones that get screwed in the ends. When the market tanks and all the people in the know know that it's going to happen and they get the hell out and we're all like stuck holding the bag. Yeah. And I think that's why there's so much of this crazy, I always use the word polarization, but there's like, you know, people don't trust the institutions anymore. They just don't trust it. You know, why would they? they you know, they've been screwed so many times. Sure. And that's why there's all this stuff between, you know, the vaccines and people being vaccine hesitants. Right. Why would they not? You know, it's almost like I can totally see where they're coming from. Yeah. And do I agree with it? No, I think the vaccines are good and you should use them. But like, you can see where the hesitancy comes from. Yeah. They don't believe politicians. They don't believe the institutions. And all they do is they hear this like talking in the background from all these politicians. I mean, at least I, when I look at them talking, I'm like, there's a 50-50 chance what they're saying is truth. Yeah. Literally anything out of their mouth just doesn't even, it could be anything, you know? Yeah. It just takes one really kind of charismatic, not even politician, but anyone that can speak and has a believable tone or words. And then, you know, people jump on it and it, yeah. the vaccine has some microchip in it that's controlling all of us or whatever, not even the vaccine, but anything that's kind of, yeah. you know, um, widely suggested or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And at least I feel like if I look at somebody, I have a pretty good sense if like they're being honest or they're not being honest. I always felt like I had a good judge of character, uh-huh. even like looking at TV or looking at, you know, a news reporter or like whatever. I could kind of get a sense of like, oh, they're bullshitting or they don't seem like, you know, they're really that truthful. I mean, there are people that are very charismatic that will totally dupe you. Right. But I think those are few and far between. I think you can sort of read between the lines. I mean, you look at a Trump or even Biden. Like, I don't trust these. I don't trust what they're saying. Yeah. I think people got to use like their intuition sometimes. Yeah. And then we're all kind of have different, I don't know, skill set with that. Right. Like not everyone is such a good judge of character. So they might be more, you know, impressionable, you know? Yeah. I think the majority of people are very impressionable. Yeah. But I think it's part of it's just like being aware of it, like just realizing in your head, like, hey, I'm impressionable. Right. Like most people won't think that. They think, oh, no, you can't, you know, <laughs> I'm not naive. You can't pull one over on me. Right. It's interesting. Reading some of the research I did on consumption, it was saying like the best road to like a happy life is to not just get rid of consumption. Like consumption does serve a purpose. Like you do get like money serves a purpose. Like so these retirement ads, they're selling the consumption dream, right? They're selling the dream that you're going to eventually be old and gray and have a lake house and be on the canoe with nice white teeth, you know, with your wife and you're still going to have sex because there's boner (laughs) pills that you could buy and and you can have money for all this stuff and you're going to vacation, do all this thing. And so it's not like getting rid of that, but then what this study kind of talks about is meaningful activities. If you mix consumption with like meaningful activities and meaningful activities mean like we were saying before, like spending time with friends, helping people. Yeah. Listening to people. That's like meaningful, you know? Sure. One of like, I feel like our bonding experiences was like, I mean, not to get all morbid, but like when my mom was dying, like you made two days before my mom died, you were with me with the hospice people, you know, help me fill out paperwork and just being by my side. Yeah. That's a huge thing. You didn't pay anything for that. You showed up. Right. And that meant more than like any dinner you could have taken me out to any vacation you could have. You know what I mean? Like that was more meaningful than all of it. Wow. Anyway, not to get all. I love you, man. <laughs> love you too, man. No, no. Listen, it goes kind of back to, like I said, being in the medical field and you see 
people need your time or are like, yeah, in a vulnerable time or whatever. And what you can help with, you know, you do. Yeah. And I think those things, again, I think we get duped into believing that the consumption part is what's going to make you happy. The more stuff you have, the more secure you are financially. And I'm not saying those things aren't somewhat important in some ways, but it's like the meaningful activity and the helping and just being there for friends and cultivating relationships. Like that shit is so much better and so much. I mean, how many documentaries can you possibly watch where, you know, there's poor people that are so happy because they've got this great social network of people and family around them. They have no money, right? but they're freaking happy and they're they're content. Yeah. I'm realizing that kind of a tone or kind of theme of investing, especially, you know, as you get to middle age and older is that money can buy you time. Mm Mm-hmm. It's definitely a selling point. Who doesn't want more time? Right. You know, whether we use it to hike and and vacation or is it whatever people want to do with it, you know? Right. The whole idea of being financially independent is that, you know, you don't have to spend your time, trade all your hours of your life to produce money. Right. That's the whole ideal is to like be able to have enough money where you don't have to continually try to produce it, spend all your time. Like you want to spend more of your time with friends and family and cultivating things and doing activities that are fun and meaningful. Nobody wants to be in the rat race, right? I mean, <laughs> and the thing is like, you're in a profession where you help people. So I don't consider you as someone in the rat race. I'm sure there's days where you're like sitting there for 12 hours and you're like, I want to get the hell out of here. <laughs> or like, I don't want to be here. It happens to everybody, right? Sure. Sure. But if it was up to you, you wouldn't be working 12 hours a day, six days a week. Right. But you do it because, you you know, we need money at this point in our lives and that's what we do. Right. It's kind of where I can fit into my profession and what they offer. And we're at a, I won't say like at their mercy, but what they can give you is 12 hour shifts. It's like, all right, I'll, you know, I'll take it and then I'll take my days off, you know? Yeah. And I'll join my family. I'm in the mid part of my life with little kids. And, yeah. But it's interesting. Like we watch people doubling down on the consumption part. You know, I see this all the time where they just keep buying bigger and better stuff. And they stay, they're literally at a level we're talking about is like, if you get to a financial independence stage of your life, it means you have enough money where you don't have to continually try to produce more. And most people do the opposite. What they do is they just keep increasing their expenses to the extent of what their income's increasing to. Yeah. And they're just always just treading water. Yeah. I mean, what they can do is they can live off what they were living at as their income goes up, just put that income away, invest it, build it to a nest egg that like now will produce enough income so that you don't have to work every day, you know, so you don't have to do these things, but that doesn't happen. The insight I get in my business is that most people will just continually like ratchet up their income or ratchet up their spending as their income goes up. Yeah. It's like the fish tank thing, right? Like the fish grows as big as the fish tank. And then right. it's like, I need another fish tank. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Right. Big hat, no cattle, they call it too. <laughs> like, right. It's like, they look like they have this amazing life and that they're very wealthy and they're literally right on the cusp of being bankrupt if they lose their job or, you know. Yeah. I don't know if everyone appreciates or understands how the comfort of sitting on giving you financial independence from having some, you know, money under the mattress or you know, whatever. Right. Whatever call it or yeah, whatever. Some security, right? Yeah. Security where you want to keep it is your business, but it's like, yeah, there's a comfort and something to get out of that. Right. So I think all of this stuff is like one of those weird, happy balances. There's no set points where you're just like, I did it. I made it. Right. 
You know, like I have enough money and I'm completely secure in every part of my life. I think it's just a moving target. It's like something that you're constantly trying to, yeah, you know, adjust levels. And, and yeah, we were talking about the set point thing. Everybody has like a certain set point for happiness. Mm-hmm. And 50% of it is like up to us to control. And 50% is just genetics. It's just what we're born with. Yeah. Some of us are born with more depressive kind of personalities that their set point is going to be, you know, more on the depressive kind of anxiety ridden part of the spectrum where other people are like more optimistic and, you know, look forward to the future and more, I don't know what the word is, like just have a better outlook, you know, on life positive. Yeah. And those type of different personality types or, you know, what people deal with in life can influence spending or saving or right. where you live, where you don't motivations, you know, to be move out of your tiny little house or kind of change your environment. And I guess, yeah, you know, people, someone might get complacent versus someone who's just going to pick up, go somewhere else. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, the set point is weird because I always thought it was up to me. Like I always thought like I was 100% in control. But you're not. I mean, you also have like life circumstances happen. People react to life circumstances in different ways. True. So like people get sick, people die, you're dealing with hard stuff. Yeah. And then to boot, if you have like a depressive lower set points, it's going to be harder for you to maintain a level of happiness than, you know, maybe somebody that has a higher like positive set point. Yeah. I think it's just something like to notice. Like I notice it within myself. I'm like, wow. Yeah, I do a lot of work on trying to keep the 50% that I can control, not keep upping it, but just keep myself in that positive. Because if I'm not doing those things, I'm like, I'm automatically going down. Yeah. I'd automatically start getting negative into a negative mindset. And like the world's bad and like everything is against me. I'm conscious of that. So yeah, there's like a maintenance almost to, I know that for you, exercises. Yeah. You say that when we exercise together, it's like, this is my, um, I don't want to say like keeps me normal, but keeps you balanced. Therapy. Yeah. Therapy keeps you balanced. And when I do and I'm consistent with it, I do feel the positive kind of, uh, I guess, how you're saying that, you know, you get a little bit more of that. Maybe it's a neurochemical thing where it's like you get more of that serotonin or whatever you get from that. Mm-hmm. It gets you more balanced, positive. And uh, yeah, so it's something that I appreciate when I'm more consistent with it. Yeah. With the working out. But you have like other routines that I am. Like you're up early, like you're an up early kind of guy. Yeah. You're getting crap done. You have routines. We all have these like routines that keep things like without those, then your life feels kind of like out of control, right? In some ways. Yeah. I mean, I have to really attribute my being a morning person now to, you know, 12 years ago when my daughter came home from the hospital, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I was like, that's where it started. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Before that, you slept in. Yeah, I was like, you know, oh, 10 o'clock, all right, you know, I'll get up now, you know, but <laughs> she came home from the hospital. It was like, bang, and it was a life changer. And I appreciate it, you know, but now it's also early mornings at the hospital and stuff. Right. So it kind of fits, you know, it was a good kind of lifestyle change or whatever. Well, let's say like nothing good happens like after midnight, right? Or no- nothing. <laughs> <laughs> right. But then there's the other side to it. You know, you're up at four or five in the morning and then it's like, where is everybody? Oh, yeah, they're sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> And it's dark. Yeah. It's quiet, dark. It makes the day seem like really long too, right? Yeah. Like when you're up at four, by the time like 10 o'clock rolls around, I'm like, what the hell? I'm like, it's only 10 a.m. Yeah. I'm already tired from the day. Right. No, if I sleep till five, I'm like, all right, this is, you know. You slept in a little bit. Yeah. More balanced. (laughs) Yeah. At least on work days. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> so speaking of set points, like when you think of Dave Grohl, so I've been listening, like he's been like out there a lot lately. He has this book out, which is Storyteller, right? which I listen to. It's on Audible. It's really good. But he's also been interviewed like now on all the podcasts. I don't know if he's promoting the book or whatever. He's like a hero for guys our age. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Like you see him just like way back playing drums with Nirvana and on like, you see, you really see him candid, I think, in that unplugged special they did. And now he's just like the middle aged, like, you know, elder statesman superhero for guys our age to me. You know? <laughs> but I think speaking of set point, I feel like he's got a higher set point. I mean, I don't know the guy. I'm just projecting what I know from reading about him and listening to him. Yeah. Like he just seems like a positive, like energetic guy. Right. I mean, he considers himself like a spaz. He's like, I'm spazzing out all day long. That's what he says. <laughs> you know, he drinks a lot of coffee and he smokes cigarettes and like, you know, yeah. and it's funny when they interview him on this thing, he's like, yeah, he's like, I really don't do anything health wise. That's good for me. <laughs> he's like, I should be like doing vocal exercises, but instead I have, two shots of Crown Royal and two beers before every night I go on stage. Wow. Yeah. And the whole band does supposedly. Yeah. But it's funny. Like you said, he's candid with that stuff. Yeah. He just seems like a super cool kind of uh, our hero. <laughs> kind of like a nerdy rock guy. Yeah. Yeah. Nerdy. Definitely the nerdy kind of, but he comes off like not that way, but it's funny. I read an article, an interview and he said, you know, he just like waltzed into a record store mm -hmm. unnoticed just this like middle-aged guy digging in the record bins and with a friend and no one noticed him and he was in and out, you know, but also he's this rock and roll hall of fame member. And yeah. Played the biggest venues in the world. Right. Wembley stadium with a hundred thousand people. And yeah, it's pretty insane. And to keep like your head on straight with all that. Yeah. I mean, I don't care who you are. That's like got to mess with your head. I think about it, like one day, like you're sitting at home, like he talks about like, I'll be watching horror movies with my daughter eating pizza on the couch. And then like two hours later, I'm getting shuttled off to play in front of a hundred thousand people. Yeah. Like, how do you like manage that? Talk about dopamine rush. Like, how do you, you know what I mean? Yeah. I've heard Billy Joel kind of talk about that too, being from Long Island. I've seen him a few times just, yeah. It's like you said, you know, you're going in the limo or one time he played Shea stadium like several years ago and mm -hmm. he played two nights there before they closed the stadium. And he drove his boat there. And then like all of a sudden he's playing with Paul McCartney and Roger Daltrey and all these, you know, Tony Bennett was there. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's like, how do you come down from that where, you know, all these people are shouting for you and coming to see and play piano and yeah. And then you go home and he said, he's like, he goes home and then he like makes spaghetti and like, you know, has to, you know, it's like super into cooking and just real like kind of right. the Italian thing, I guess. And it's like this regular guy on the couch again, you know, hard. I mean, Paul Stanley from Kiss talked about that. He said that like he played Madison Square Garden full makeup with Kiss. Wow. And then like full packed house, amazing show, shows over. He's walking down the street in Manhattan to get a slice of pizza all by himself. <laughs> Nobody knows who he is because he was in yeah. makeup. Nobody has a clue who he is. He's just eating a pizza by himself where he like an hour ago, he's on stage right. in front of, you know, 50,000 people at Madison Square Garden. Right. Like how do you... And I feel like the kinds of temptations like a regular guys like us have, like there's no comparison. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, our dopamine rush is like, I don't know. What is it? Like <laughs> having a couple cocktails or I don't know. Yeah. Like we go out, you know, and listen to music. Yeah. Seeing friends. And yeah, it's definitely more subtle of the media. Yeah. Subtle of the median average kind of, yeah, dopamine rush that most people have. But dude, I wouldn't trade it. I couldn't imagine doing what they do. Like, I feel like that'd be overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention the touring and 
I guess a show every other day kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's like exhausting, you know? Freaking jet lag. You gotta you gotta listen to that storyteller book. It's really good. Especially the intro to it. He talks about just like how he looks in the mirror now and he sees like these big bags under his eyes and like his teeth, the enamels coming off from like bumping up against the mic night after night. Wow. Singing into and just how he's seeing himself as like this weathered like musician. Yeah. But he's embracing it. And he says the story about it. he walks into the backstage after a concert and there's like these two older, like iconic musicians and he doesn't mention their names. And he's like, there's one of them that's like Botoxed up, hair dyed, perfect cap teeth, skin, clothes, perfect. Everything's perfect. Yeah. And he's like, it looked like a room that's just been painted one too many times or like, wow. yeah, like this cool description. And he's like, then the other guy, he's like, this guy, like in wiry gray hair, like teeth that look like George Washington's teeth, <laughs> <laughs> like wrinkle and gnarly T-shirt. He couldn't give a crap like what anybody thought about him. Yeah. And he saw like the dichotomy, the difference between the two. Yeah. And he's like, in that moment, I decided I want to be the second guy, like not going to polish this up. I want to embrace yeah. all the character and all the freaking struggle. And I want to embrace the bags under my eyes because I'm jet setting around the world trying to get, you know, one more concert, you know, to make yeah. that crowd happy. And one more. Again, coming back to the consumption, conspicuous consumption thing of, you know, and it's a choice in so many things where, you know, you don't have to have the mm. brand new car. And, you know, I want to have the beat up old Cadillac versus the, you know, like what you need and what you want. And you realize what you need is the bare basics. Yeah. And a guy like him could have anything he wants. Obviously, he's got more money than he knows what to do with it, but he doesn't show it off. Right. He's definitely not conspicuously consuming anything. Right. You don't see him in like luxury cars or. Yeah. You just don't. I mean, maybe he has them. I don't know. Yeah, he still wears flannel shirts when everyone sees him. So. Yeah, he's like a regular guy. He drinks Coors Light. Like, yeah, exactly. He's like <laughs> you know what's funny is there's so many generations now that the music that we grew up with and before us, you know, it crosses so many generations now that it's funny. We were kind of just talking about this, but Mick Jagger of all, you know, people to be in the middle of, you know, Charlotte Plaza Midwood one night was just alone at a bar outside on the sidewalk, you know, having a drink. When was that? Uh, they were here in like September, I think, the Stones. And he was just hanging out in Plaza Midwood? Yeah, there was like a picture of him on like one of the social media things. It just said, you know, Mick Jagger, are you waiting on a friend? You know, like that old song. Yeah. And he was just sitting there by himself. And there's people in the bar talking about the Stones playing the next night. And he's over there like, you know, really just sitting. Yeah, it's a picture. You could see it. it was on. like That's pretty wild. I saw it. Yeah, I was like logging into my email and I saw it. I was like, wow, you know. I mean, he's like in his 70s. He's been like that guy for 50 plus years. Yeah. So he's got to be like so used to and comfortable in that role. Like nothing's really going to phase that guy. Right. He seems like kind of, he wears like nice clothes, but he didn't really do seem like he didn't go for like the Botox guy. Like you were talking about, he kind of just stayed. Yeah. Kind of balanced. Yeah. Well, like also Keith Richards too. My God, definitely no Botox there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like anti-Botox. Yeah. He spent it all like on, I guess, well, not all, but <laughs> But, you know, on his health, right? Getting out of addiction and all that kind of stuff. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I already lives in Connecticut. Like, it's just so funny because I think of my friend living in Connecticut from school. And can you imagine, like, you know, you buy some house <laughs> in Connecticut and you're living next to hey, comes you know, hey, hey, hey. Oh, Keith is our neighbor. You <laughs> can't understand the word he says. Yeah, he's like, hey. yeah, he's just groveling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes when you hear something that's really, 
iconic music. I kind of like associate it with something I've seen in a commercial or I'll just be like, wow, this would be really cool to, you know, mm-hmm. kind of see on TV. I think that's where like MTV had influenced that with fusing film and music. And then it went into, you know, into movies where yeah, movies, what music goes along with a TV show or movies or, yeah, you know, in the scene, then soundtrack. Yeah. Right. And no dialogue. And you're just like listening to, you know, hearing something that's influencing the art and the writing and the TV show or whatever, you know? Yeah, true. I mean, MTV is, I learned 95% of what I know about music from literally watching MTV every day with my older sisters. Yeah, My older sister was like, literally like an idiot servant when it came to, she knew every band, every song. And she would like, tell me as it would come up on MTV. And I kind of learned from listening to her. Yeah, I learned everything from that. Like, Watching videos after school, that was like, I could do that for hours. Yeah. And then like MTV News, that's how you got all your like information. MTV News, Headbangers Ball at night, (laughs) like late night. Like I watched that. Yeah, that's right. MTV News. I forgot about that. Yeah. Coming home from school and I would watch like uh, Yo MTV Raps. That was like how. See, I wasn't into the rap stuff, but yeah, I knew it was on. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I watched Headbangers Ball. That was on like Saturday night, right? Yeah. What was that guy's name? Something Rocket, like Jimmy Rocket or something, or Ricky. It was Ricky Rackman, right? Was Ricky one... Rackman. That's, <laughs> that's it. He was like, Ricky Rackman. See, later on, it was someone else. I forget. It's been so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that stuff. Man. <laughs> also thinking about, I wanted it to be fun. And I feel like, I don't know, all my friends influence me. And if I'm talking about shit, I'm like, well, I want to the audience to know where like, you know, it's coming from, like, you yeah, know, it's coming it. from you. yeah, it was good. I really man. appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. This has really been fun. And we're getting a lot of downloads too, which is great. Cool. So, I mean, last week we got a hundred and just in one week, 195. Wow. So we're approaching almost like a thousand a month. That's not that much. Good for you. No, that's a, that's yeah, a- it's good. It, yeah. You need like 10,000 a month to make money. Right. But whatever it's growing. I can't believe a thousand people would be listening to what I'm talking about, you know? Just Yeah, that's how you have to think about it. Like a thousand people on their iPad or, you know, whatever. Like Right. The headphones in and they're just out for a walk and they're listening to me talk about whatever. Very cool. Well, Timmy, thank you for coming on the podcast. So happy to have you. Thank you, Al. Been a good influence in my life. So I wanted to share you with the audience. Thanks, Al. All right, everyone. Well, we'll see you next time. <laughs>